Hello, friends. Um, I want to start this episode by talking about what this show and my writing and my project overall has been about all this time. Um, and you've probably heard it come up on the show before if you listen to the show a lot, which is just asking the question, what is the human being and being honest with uh, our answers and letting our cultural and political and economic thoughts, feelings, and actions unfurl from that. It is a spiritual project which finds a lot of um, alignment with uh, the project of anthroposophists, uh, Rosicrucians, other Christian esotericists. But, you know, I also have to say it's my own project. Um, <laughs> I have my headquarters in a lot of esoteric and occult traditions, but of course I have my own things that I'm interested in. Um, literature, horror, um, postmodern philosophy, weird French films, uh, <laughs> and so forth. So uh, punk rock, you know, it all comes together, what I'm trying to do. And Another way of saying all of that is that I'm trying to draw on all the sort of aspects of reality, of being human, that rupture the existing order and help me create a door to a different kind of world, or maybe even help me recreate the world entirely. Look, obviously... I don't think I'm doing this on my own. I don't think that I am just some, um, you know, Alistair Crowley, L. Ron Hubbard, John Whiteside Parsons person trying to tear a fabric in space-time in desert to release Babylon or the Antichrist or whatever. I don't think that would be very good and <laughs> or useful, and I also don't think I could do it. But I do think that creating connections between myself and other people that are interested in sort of tilting the prism of, uh, you know, that, w that we have available to us and letting the light to refract in different ways, um, in newly colorful ways, so that we can see anew and start again is really important. A way of talking about this um, another way still is reconstructing reality. And that's what I talk about a lot in this episode with Federico Campagna, the anarchist philosopher of magic and prophets. Um, the beginning of the world project, I should say. Maybe we, we call it that. Um, other philosophers have talked about this. Um, the anthropologist Bruno Latour, for example, um, plenty of occultists, um, and Peter Soderdijk even talks about this in his idea of life reform. The whole thing is that it's not enough to get the conditions right, the material conditions right. Like, we can't just sort of reorganize um, what happens in politics and economy and suddenly we'll all be happy because the idea of material conditions itself is a misfire. Um, or at least it is now taking us down the wrong path because we followed it too long. It's overstayed its welcome. So materiality, materialism, and its accompanying uh, 
pals, <laughs> its cronies of consumerism and capitalism and, uh, you know, scientism, all of that, they were useful for our development at a certain point. And they've given a lot of great things to us, but now it's time to move on. And moving on into something that is not materiality. I'll come up with a good name for this at some point, rather than just defining it by what it's not, by calling it, you know, non-materialism. Um, but that's what's next for us on this path. And so we can't just talk about material conditions anymore. It's not useful. It doesn't help. Um, except that we obviously do have to work on material conditions at this time. People have urgent material needs. Obviously, not starving to death, um, not being in a war zone, uh, not having medical issues that can't be attended to are <laughs> foundational for <laughs> a lot of people's ability to engage in a world of non-materiality, of tilting the prison of reconstructing the world, of asking what the human being is and all that. I'm not saying that's the same for everybody. There are plenty of people who are in, you know, war zones or are hungry or are, you know, sick or whatever who are having encounters with the world that are presenting the profound dissolution of the false materialistic worldview. So we shouldn't just equate all of that and say that everybody um, has the same thoughts who's going through some sort of material difficulty. But y'all know what I mean when I say that. I tend to call this project radical phenomenology or the occult, um, meaning if we get deeply into our experience, like really honest with our experience, that question, what is the human being, and then sort of look at what it is, what it means to be human and you contain all the answers within yourself to this question we can look at our experiences and unfold the world as it is and move from there i don't usually use the word metaphysics um and i have my own reasons for this um but i also used to call this becoming psychotic I would say becoming psychotic because a world, you know, that <laughs> demands all the things it demands from us, that we work and die, that we live in rigid rule systems that were punished for by violence, that we live without meaning, that we simply consume spectacle, um, rather than engaging in things that are enriching, that we have false views of our bodies, that um, certain kinds of relationships are privileged while others are completely um, demonized, criminalized, um, that the imagination itself is constantly being wrestled away from us. That seems uh, to be what we refer to as the sane and rational world. And so I would say becoming psychotic is necessary. Um, I don't do that to romanticize psychosis. I'm taking it in the direction of the psychoanalysis of Jacques Lacan. Lacan uh, Lacanian analysis basically has three diagnoses. I'm not going to go into all of them here, but 
on a recent episode of the show, I broke down all those diagnoses and uh, character structures. That was episode 167 with Peter Rollins. Um, But just to go over the psychosis diagnoses, the idea being that there's no name of the father for someone who is psychotic. I know that that probably doesn't make sense um, (laughs) to people who don't know Lacanian analysis, but so I'll just give a simpler explanation of it. There's no everyday obedience to the authority that makes the world uh, itself, that makes people believe the world is as it is in sort of consensus reality. That's a huge oversimplification of the Lacanian uh, idea there. And of course, Lacanian analysts are constantly working on and with this concept. So it's evolving. But that's the simplest way to say it. The romanticization of psychosis leads people to say things like, wow, like all artists have to be crazy to be geniuses and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, there's... uh, praised for people's suffering in an unwitting way a lot of times. Um, I don't mean it in that way. What I mean is becoming psychotic is not the sort of compulsory character structure diagnosis that Lacanian analysis places, but rather that something that we choose. Now, most Lacanian analysts would say that you can't shift from one character structure to another, um, and that's another thing that you can listen to me talk about on that episode with Peter. Um, but I would say that through spiritual development and perhaps philosophical development, but it has to be a non-materialistic philosophical development, um, not just self-development, but real spiritual development, we can become psychotic in a way that we um, divest ourselves of the kinds of consensus reality that are hurting us. Through this, we can throw out things like, you know, our permanent relationship with capitalism, our total subjection to states and corporations, um, our idea that science knows everything or that religion knows everything, for that matter. Um, We can move away from commitments to patriarchy, to racism, to homophobia, to transphobia, to everything else um, that you can think of there. We can start seeing major developments in thought as momentary psychotic breaks um, or intentional psychotic breaks, whether that would be the original impulse of Marxism or uh, Hegel's insights, or if it ends up being something as radical as anarchistic, magical philosophy, (laughs) or the developments um, and discoveries of occultists like Rudolf Steiner or Franz Barden. One of life's great pleasures is coming across a thinker or an artist who has sort of (laughs) touched the same wound or rupture as you, who articulates your own project and thoughts with the same spirit, but in a different way. 
it's so thrilling when someone has reached the same conclusions as you by walking a totally different path. What a sense of kinship. I'm thinking of a line from Alan Bennett's very funny novella about the queen starting to read fiction called The Uncommon Reader. Um, in there, there's this line that you don't put your life into books, you find it there. And there's a bit about how it's so gratifying to find someone saying what you've always known but couldn't say yourself. So how astonishing to find so much of this project that I'm describing, my own project, and I'm sure some that you have as well, uh, in books by a living leftist writer, uh, Federico Campagna. Federico is a philosopher. He's the author, most recently, of Prophetic Culture, uh, Recreation for Adolescents, or Recreation for Adolescents, as well as other books, including Technic and Magic, The Reconstruction of Reality. Um, and he's also the host of the Overmorrow's Library podcast, which covers mysticism, politics, mythology, philosophy, video game design, and more, and features some crossover guests with this podcast, including Franco Bifo Berardi and Hugh Lemmy. I had felt a great re-inspiration, a new kind of breath um, in my own commitments to the work of asking what is the human being and unfurling my politics and economics and cultural responses and work from uh, the answers I find there through talking to Federico. And it also made me feel less lonely, um, which is why I started this podcast in the first place, was to have conversations about these things that I cared about to constellate um, the lights of so many people with my own, if I could, to create a new kind of picture of the sky and the stars and destiny. And that constellation includes all of you who are listening, by the way. So I'm so happy to share this episode and this sky with you. I'm now approaching episode 200 Against Everyone's Connor be 200. Um, that is something like 300 hours or more of free content. Please support the show if you do not already. Your support as a listener is the only thing that has gotten this show to 200 episodes. And all those hours and hours of content that you can go back and listen to as part of this project of reconstructing reality, of asking what is the human being. Uh, and you can do that by going to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib and contributing at whatever level you want, um, however much you feel you can give. The way I always like to think about it is if you listen to an episode and you think, you know what, I would buy Connor a cup of coffee each month for what he's done, or a meal, or a book, or uh, send him on a trip around the world. <laughs> anyway. Uh, your contribution through Patreon is huge, it's important, and it's vital. So patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. I cannot wait <laughs> to share this episode, so I'm not going to anymore. Here's my conversation with Federico Campania. Here we go.
Hi, everybody. It's against everyone with Connor Habib. Hello, Federico Campania. Hello, Connor. Nice <laughs> to meet you. Um, okay, so I think we'll just let's jump right into the deep end first instead of uh, <laughs> holding back and talk about reconstituting and reconstructing reality as uh, mm. part of the task ahead. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I agree. <laughs> so it's it's good. Um, okay. I, it's a good starting point for the conversation. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, but I think, you know, uh, I might have a different sort of way of talking about it um, because I, you know, very interested in occultism and um, I like to start with my question for reconstituting and reconstructing reality, which is what is the human being? What is a human being? And then allowing uh, politics, culture, uh, economy to unravel from that, to unfurl from that, I should say. Um, because I think it's a question that's not really asked outside of some sort of evolutionary biology perspective. But I would think that you probably have a foundational um, or maybe a grounding question for this reconstructing reality, maybe that you ask or bring to bear when you're uh when you're doing this project which is i'm sure a daily doing and undoing for you uh yeah i think in a way similar to your question what is the human being mine i think was what is reality mm -hmm. that was my foundational question and it's a question that i started asking myself because i started wondering uh, whether what i always consider reality was actually real it's an, it's, I think it's a simple realization. Everybody has it, of course, intellectually. It doesn't take much, and we'll, we'll get into that in a, in a moment. But experientially, it only get, happens to people sometimes when, let's say, in situations of great distress or altered status, states of consciousness. Mm -hmm. In my particular case, when I was younger, I used to suffer from uh, some problems of so-called depersonalization. It's a situation in which basically you depersonalize from yourself, and uh, it's as if you were external to your own body. And of course, this is something very distressing at first. And uh, after a while, um, I didn't get better at it. I think nobody does. But I, I started wondering if I am outside of the reality I see around myself, if I have this perception, where am I? Of course, this is not a real philosophical question. It was an existential anxiety that I had at the time. But it started igniting a series of questions about to what extent I coincided with myself, to what extent, um, in a way, I, I possessed something behind Federico, which was that thing which was depersonalized when I felt like that. This chain of reasoning, of course, started to unfold in a, in a more metaphysical direction. And I started to question what is reality in itself? To what extent what we see around ourselves is what there is, or in fact, there is something behind it. Now, this was the beginning. When you start, uh, I think, entering um, philosophical inquiries, you usually start, like Aristotle used to say, with thauma. Thauma is, is a sentiment. It means awe and terror at the same time. This is the beginning, Thauma, but then you try to unfold it in a more rational approach, typically when you do philosophy, at least. And so I started going into metaphysics, trying to understand what is reality. Now, as I was saying, this is a question that I think everybody has asked themselves at some point, and it's easy to 
answer it to a certain extent if one thinks about it just for a moment. What we can easily understand is that when we see things outside of us, the projection is happening inside. When we hear sounds outside of us, the projection of the sound is happening inside. When we touch the object that we touch, in as much as we touch it, the touch is, in, is internal. So let's say if we were to locate the world, we would have to locate it inside, not outside of ourselves. And then, of course, you start from here, like Kant did, for example, the phenomenologist. And understand that when you talk about the world, you're talking about something that is very heavily filtered by your way of perceiving it. Yes. So, so before, can we just put a pin? There's so much already to go. And I don't want to seize you, your speech and take you in a completely different direction. But I just have a few questions before you pr proceed, because my, my question, you know, in what you've just said, and also in reading your books is why you call it metaphysics and not phenomenology. You know, my, my, my feeling of this is like, you know, when I talk about the occult, I call I said, you know, really the occult is just a sort of radical phenomenology where we start by seeing how layered the concept is um, and how the way it binds to percepts, the way it binds to perception and the way it binds to perspective and um, the ways that we uh, we can undo all this. I mean, right, it's like when you talk about your dissociation and you talk about or depersonalization is the word you use. I shouldn't say disassociation, but the depersonalization, you know, I mean, we're all depersonalized in the sense of, you know, we walk around thinking that we can see our own faces is the simplest example. And yet we're perceived by everyone else in a way in which we can never perceive ourselves ever because we can't see our own faces. Even, you know, a, a mirror is a sort of flat ecology of light, you know, and surface and uh, metals and this sort of thing. It's not really us. So, you know, this is, this is a question that I've always sort of had with your work, even though I, you have sort of addressed it a bit, but I, I, I wonder why it was not a radical phenomenological project. And maybe perhaps this is the difference between asking what is reality versus what is the human being, where I would say that's the one I'm saying is phenomenology. The one you're saying is metaphysics maybe, but it still sounds like you have phenomenological projects. So could, could we maybe just define those terms and, and your in your version of those terms so i could you know um and then and then just say shut up connor and keep going yeah <laughs> no 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 of course um well i think what i contend in my work as i was saying i start with a question of what is reality but then i try to look beyond reality to a certain extent and that's why i i, I call it metaphysics rather than phenomenology <laughs> the point is that with phenomenology, the focus is, of course, on the limitations of our understanding. So the world that appears to us as a phenomenon, so as something that is manifested to us. And that's one way. But I think the risk sometimes is to, to say, well, since of what is beyond the phenomenon, we cannot say anything, then we should treat it as if, to a certain extent, it didn't concern us. Mm. It didn't exist. Metaphysics are on the other side. Metaphysics in the past tried to uh, regulate, especially in the Middle Ages and so on, tried to regulate also what happened, what existed in reality beyond our mind. And that has to be kept in check. And that's, of course, what I try to do when I talk about ineffability. We might maybe get into that in order to get into it in a moment. But at least reminds us that of the presence of something beyond reality. 
and of the fact that it is important to include what is beyond our perceptions, beyond our cognition, and especially beyond our ability to name it, to include it nonetheless in our understanding of existence, even beyond reality, existence beyond reality, what I call the ineffable. That is metaphysics in the sense that is metaphysica is beyond the things of nature, because the things of nature, as we perceive them, are projected within ourselves and are contained within our language. That ineffable existence is beyond that. And that's why I use the word metaphysics. The last reason why I use metaphysics is also that that particular um, that word has been used and misused many times um, also to signify something quite mystical in a, in a very vague sense. Of course, this is a, a misnomer. It's not what metaphysics is. Uh, but I wanted to reclaim that kind of understanding as well. And also because the kind of investigation that I try to suggest, trying to understand how reality appears to us, the, the structures and the fundamental ways, the way in which we understand it as fragile and especially modifiable, can apply also in other fields. For example, I'm thinking about um, video game design or the design of digital worlds. And in that case, you truly have a metaphysical approach in the sense that when you create a digital environment, the physica, the things of nature, so to say, in the, in the world are precisely what you design. And you, you are located beyond them. So a familiarity with metaphysics also gives you a familiarity with the idea of the malleability of worlds. You have a step, you, you, have, you have a place outside of the, of the world, outside of nature, from which you intervene and modify it. If we take that away and we remain confined within the phenomenon, we, I think we risk losing any possibility of intervening on the phenomenon and taking it paradoxically as nature. Mm. Yeah, well, it's so... <laughs> I get it's it's so interesting because like I, I again agree with everything you say although I find myself still wanting to root it in phenomenology <laughs> that's it's just that phenomenology as you described it which is like attendant to its limits like deeply attendant to the limits like I mean the problem for me is that thought is usually left out of a lot of the kinds of phenomenology people do which is really sensual and whereas I think that um, you know, we can see that all, you know, sensual experience is a thought experience, as you've said elsewhere in, in, in your work as well. And so I think that, um, but uh, so on the one hand, I find myself wanting to get into that with you. But on the other hand, I think there's a lot of other interesting things to talk about, whether, you know, especially since I think we, I think mostly the terms... <laughs> find a lot of overlap in our ways of thinking so please uh for, please just keep going with where you were going before i derailed you unless you don't remember and then we can go somewhere else <laughs> no, I, was just, I was just talking about uh how reality is, is constructed in the sense that how it is possible to have an everyday uh easy immediate understanding of reality as something that is not there mm. yeah so that was what i was talking about but I think it's what was I think important to to keep in mind is that when we when we live in the world, we are capable of understanding this. It just literally takes five minutes of a person's time or of a, of a teenage stoner's uh, joint to understand this very simple thing. But of course, it's impossible to live uh, when when we when we hold this idea too close to ourselves. Mm -hmm. We have a world around ourselves which is actually internally projected, 
that also includes other people. That also includes everything we see. That also includes ourselves. It takes a leap of faith to believe in the existence of an external world. We don't have any proof of the existence of the existence of an external world. It's just impossible to prove it. Now, if you suspend your disbelief and you start acting as if really, since we don't have any proof, then we don't take it as uh, as existing at all, then it becomes very difficult to live. And I think that's why, even though it's something is very easy to understand for everyone, then it's also not something that people think about very much. <laughs> I mean, I think when you when you say that, I mean, I I I often say something like this, and people find very fierce like resistance to this idea that, well, no, there is no proof that you know anybody exists, but my you know what I interpret even as my own consciousness, what I interpret as my own consciousness. And so in some ways, this solipsistic worldview is like the only one that we can really rely on, but we have to develop it more deeply. We have to actually explore what that means. And it's never been really refined in a way that I think is useful. However, when you talk about the other existing, um, I mean, I think, you know, the the fact that I would (laughs) say that you exist and we're having this conversation or that I do, rather than faith, I would say that that's that I would say that that's love, you know, the demand, like the, the, the granting of your existence. Now that sounds so egotistical and I understand it has a, a well, you exist Federico. Like I, but, but I think that the, the real act there is a constant sort of um, expression of love, you know, and that, that the others exist and that there is separation. Um, but, I, you know, I like faith as well because they're intimately tied together. Yeah, the two are tied. And yeah, you can see it, of course, as a as an act of love. And in fact, when in theological texts we we read about uh, creator divinities, often not always, but often we we talk we hear we read about their act of creation as an act of love. You know, uh, Allah is the merciful, the compassionate. And these are the, the first two attributes, for example, in Islam. I call it faith in the sense that looked at it, um, looking at it rationally of course since it doesn't have any any proof behind it it is something that you leap into like Kierkegaard used to say yeah and faith is possibly the I think the the closest concept I believe to this particular investment of belief Mm -hmm. yeah and I think it's it's interesting because you know when you were talking about the stoner questions before right the ways that these questions which are actually quite deep philosophical questions often get quarantined to these places of when you're stoned or you know when you're a kid or what whatever um these spaces where we're allowed to ask questions like is the food in the refrigerator if we're not looking at it or you know does the other room exist or whatever but these are in fact in some ways the foundational like uh, concerns of reconstructing reality or asking what is the human being and you know this answer of well yeah the food is maybe there I'm not sure but it's definitely not there in the same way as when I when it appears to me and then it takes on a different form but I think maybe now is the point where we have to sort of attend to like what you think is there when we're not looking um, that, that that we attend to, that there must be to you in that sense, some substance beyond uh, what enters into or intersects with our perceiving of it. Because, you know, there's this, um, 
I think it's Angelus Celestius has this great line about, you know, God knows that not even a worm could move without me beholding it or something like that. It's such a beautiful line. And yet, um, but uh, I think you would not go with that <laughs> in, a, in a way. Well, yeah. Well, I, I think when we, when we try to uh, face this very profound ontological question, so questions about what existence fundamentally is, I think we have to try always to remain very modest in what we can say. Okay, I think a good way maybe to start uh, looking at it is that it is possible to doubt of the existence of everything. This is a typical Cartesian uh, trick. You know, Descartes, the French philosopher, used to doubt of uh, all the ideas and the thoughts and the perceptions he, he had. And similarly, I think we can doubt of everything, so of the existence of everything, the fact that since it is an internal projection might be completely false, nothing might correspond to that projection. But then, of course, we have to we can trace back and back the fact of this projection to the point in which we we hit the eye that looks at this projection. The projection might be unreal, might be an illusion, but the eye that looks at the projection is the ground zero. The eye that looks at the projection, we could call it the eye as in the one letter I, myself. But of course, it's, it's beyond the I. Because when I consider, for example, my own feelings of my own body, when I consider my own thoughts, there is something in me that feels my feelings. There's something in me that thinks my thoughts, something that hears what I hear, that sees what I see. That thing is not me. It's to a certain extent just behind me. When Descartes thinks that thinking you know, is the demonstration that he exists. The, for example, the, the Hindu philosophers that were composing, the theologians that were composing the Chandoya Upanishads would say that beyond the thinking, there is something that thinks the thinking. That they, they called the Atman. They call that the, um, the Atman is pure existence, fundamentally. It is that thing which which is also pure awareness, is that thing which is aware of what it is aware. Now, that thing, I think we can say that it exists. That thing, we can say that it is not an illusion. However, it does not correspond to anything. The, my own internal awareness, which is aware of Federico, for example, is not myself. It's something beyond myself. It doesn't correspond to any object in particular. Mm -hmm. If I grant the existence of anything around myself, for example, the, the lighter that I'm holding, the same I can say about this object. That when we try to think about the fact that, that this object exists, even just as an illusion, the existence of this object is beyond its being a thing. It's something beyond its definition as a thing. Now, I'm cutting it very short, of course, because it, it will be a, a complicated conversation <laughs> otherwise. But the ground zero of what we can say about reality is, first, nothing in terms of describing it. We cannot describe what real reality is like, actually outside of our minds. The only thing that we can say is that it is. It is. <laughs> Parmenides, the ancient Greek philosopher, used to say exactly the same thing. Of reality, we can only say that it is. Now, the what we say, what the example I was giving a moment ago of starting to find what it is by looking inside myself, 
goes all the way to the point of um to the point of awareness so awareness is i cannot say anything about anything else but if anything else apart from awareness exists what i can say of them is it precisely the same thing that it is then in our way of thinking when two things have precisely the same attributes when a and b are identical in every respect absolutely they are the same object mm -hmm. so we can see that what there is in reality beyond the objects that we perceive and that might be illusory with the things that we construct with our mind is a plain ground of existence mm -hmm. nameless without definitions without objects which traverses everything that exists that is pure existence that is certain yeah. and that is one <laughs> So part one in an 18 part series uh, of these <laughs> conversations of what exists, what existence is. I mean, I think, yeah, uh, the, the, the idea of this sort of, um, hmm, this sort of, okay, let me try to clarify. So something that I'm very interested in, which is completely in a lot of ways opposed to most Marxism and socialism, um, even though I find a lot of affinity with both, is uh, any kind of materialism, even dialectical materialism, because of what you've just said. And because I can't posit any material reality whatsoever, I can uh, instead posit the kind of uh, ways in which uh, the non-material pure existence sort of fluoresces, moves around, uh, seems to emphasize certain tonalities, feelings, expressions, um, temperatures, these kinds of things. But I can't, um, I, I can't get into that in a material way. And so therefore it brings me to question of how to act in a cultural and political way and an economic way. Um, when I'm not making material conditions the primary uh, site of what I would call action. And I think that this is something that comes up in your work. And I, I, you know, appreciate that you refer to yourself as an anarchist because, you know, I've had to do that one because there's just nothing else to call myself, <laughs> but also because it, to, to say that I would be a Marxist or a socialist, even though I agree with a lot of what they, what Marxists and socialists say in the sort of political rights realm of things, mm -hmm. I can't, uh, I can't get on board with. And um, I think there's also, and we'll, we'll get into this maybe a little later, but I think there's also a way in which this directly extends into what you call technic, where um, everything becomes reducible to a political economy. Everything becomes reducible to its use. Um, so that even statements, which are somehow supposed to be radical statements, like everything is political, um, you know, these are, to me, enemy statements, almost, I would say, if there is such thing as an enemy. Um, they're not useful or not helpful. So, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> leave that on the table and let you pick it up and do yeah, whatever well, with it. I, I, I agree that materialism uh, in terms of, of ontology is something quite far from how I, I think about reality. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that we can trust the existence of materials as if they were reality. Uh, 
even the very notion of material or matter is cultural. Not every civilization in the in history has had a notion that there is such a thing as matter, for example, you know. And uh, in many cosmologies of the Amazon forests, the notion of matter does not exist. So that means that <clears throat> it is not a given, let's say, that matter exists as such, you know, as a separate realm. So there is a material realm. And so, of course, the, the ontological foundations of materialism are, I believe, uh, you know, shaky in, in that respect. Now, what, what is interesting with Marxism and um, other forms of socialism is, first of all, they're not always materialistic. Um, socialism in general I mean, is, is very wide and it contains many different things. With Marxism, I think it's, even though I don't share the same um, ontological starting points, I do share many of the same um, ethical directions. So recognizing the suffering of individual existing beings. Of course, in Marx, we talk only about humans, but we can apply the same, expand the same about non-humans. Recognizing that as an urgent problem that has to be addressed is close to my own sensitivity. And we can also go back to the metaphysics of a moment ago. Even though we can say ontologically only that existence is, I know it's it, it's a bit of a disappointment to reduce the ontology <laughs> to one sentence, but unfortunately, this is all the only thing that we can say. And even then, with many caveats, when we say is is a limiting concept, so existence is beyond being, and so on and so forth. But one other thing that we can say, not ontologically, but in terms of movement. We can say that, of course, even this awareness which inhabits us is, let's say, suffers and rejoices. Mm -hmm. There is that movement of suffering and rejoicing. I don't think the suffering and rejoicing are ontological entities, so they are things that exist in themselves. I think they can be better understood as maybe movements, mm -hmm. but these movements um, are, felt, are felt very keenly by the thing which is, which thinks my thoughts, which, and so on. Now, if we then do the leap of faith of believing that this existence is not entirely contained within myself, but somehow also spreads to the things that I somehow believe exist around me, then we, we are given with a situation in which we have only very few kind of like ingredients of our understanding of reality. One is the unity of existence so basically truly when you look at another fundamentally deep inside them what you're seeing their being there is precisely what you are and the other thing is that both these manifestations of the same existence are moved by movements of rejoicing and suffering mm -hmm. and then we we start having the the beginning of very simple but very precise ethics i think that really understands that this is the orientation of our of what we then understand as politics. And politics, like many other ways of intervening on reality, is simply ways of governing the movements of being. Mm -hmm. Being changes, transforms, moves, or at least our perceptions move, or there is such a thing as movement, we can call it time and many different things, and we try to somehow govern it as much as we can. Mm -hmm. Here we have the the ethical duty, I think, in a sense, as a duty towards ourselves to then govern it towards joy rather than towards suffering. And this means uncompromisingly so. So this means also modifying the material conditions of life, for example. 
but the but the last bit you say makes me think something else, makes me think to say something else, which is like, well, changing the material conditions. Like I don't I don't experience materiality, and this is part of you know this um, the self work that you know I've done. There's self and spiritual development that I've done, and I think a lot of people feel that way, and it, it could be that. They could say, well, you're just deluding yourself or you're just giving yourself a different narrative or a different story. But after a certain practice of occult exercises for long periods of time, you start experiencing reality quite differently and it gets quite, it gets very strange. I think that, um, so therefore, like, you know, talking about changing the material conditions, this even seems I cannot quite do that. Um, however, I love what you say here about the kind of uh, uh, the like the kind of inner internality of everyone else to the to the to the fact that like um, if if everything is internal and I mean obviously internal external become sort of not useful terms at a certain point when we talk this way but. Um, if everything becomes internal, if I hold everyone within me, but I can still witness their suffering, and they even feel something when I witness their suffering, then they're, the suffering that they're enduring is a part of myself which needs to be healed, contended with, dealt with, um, and and worked with. And I think that that's this sort of, you know, that that kind of real compassion, that suffering with is really important to pay attention to and to work with. I think that does tie into a kind of socialism like, you know, Billy Bragg, who was on the show, has a song called Upfield. And, you know, I've got a socialism of the heart is the uh, chorus. And he also in that song, he sings about angels. And it's very funny how these things pop out into art when I don't think Billy Bragg often thinks about or sings about angels, but they pop through in this song. I have a socialism of the heart. And that socialism of the heart for me, what that means is in this room, you know, that I'm in, I can look at the objects and kind of pay attention to, you know, the story or the imagining of the labor that produced them. And when I think about that, um, when I think about socialism that way, that I can imagine the connectivity of these things to people's labor, then that brings me to something that's not a kind of materialistic socialism in a way, but a socialism of the heart. And I, so I really like the way that you sort of, <laughs> the way that you dress, well, not all socialism is materialistic, you know, and, and yeah. a lot of it has to do with this kind of connectivity. But to remain one moment on the on the matter of transforming the, the material conditions of life, I can, of course, I understand that, let's say, with heightened levels of consciousness, one is, is capable somehow almost of transcending their own materiality. Mystics are very much like that. Simone Weil was very much like that, for example. But at other levels of consciousness, materiality impacts very much. The, 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 the ability, to, even the ability to be able to, to, to recognize things or the ability to, uh, to progress mentally. And so in that sense, the saint, the 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 bodhisattva, the mystic, the they can do without you know the material conditions. They can live like Simeon the stylite on top of a pillar alone for twenty years, absolutely. But that's not always for everyone. Mm -hmm. And I think in that sense, removing the some of some of the obstacles that also go in the way of a spiritual development, I think it's important. And often these obstacles have to do with material conditions, poverty. 
for example, being exploited, overworked. That's another example. Absolute insecurity, um, vulnerability to violence, and so on and so forth. So these things, I think, have, have, a, have, a, have a place in the pilgrim's progress towards uh, a, such a state of consciousness that you can be crucified and uh, and be fine. You know, mm. I don't think it's it's uh, it's immediate. The one the, the way in which I myself, for example, justify aspects of socialism from a mystical perspective is it we it is precisely through um that that we can progress beyond it mm -hmm. yeah uh, so a way of maybe uh, articulating that for me is the you know this concern with time which i i think we should talk about more and you know the the body the, the body what's called the body and the materiality is 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 bonded to a certain time form you know and so the idea of redeeming or liberating that time form that kind of con con condensing of time um or uh heaviness of time into this sort of materiality i think that is important i mean i think that that's really a, a, it, it's a question to me of how we would do it which is interesting like you know when you were um we're talk you you often talk about you know well and write about when we're we're communicating with the people in the future, right? Um, and you know, as someone who experienced reincarnation as true, like those people in the future, are, that's me. That's that's us. You know, we don't get to leave the cycle, and that in that brings its own sort of moral and ethical like <laughs> importance. You know, and of course, people can exploit that for reasons of you know promoting class warfare and caste system, rigid caste systems and that sort of thing. But I think for me, like the idea that even if there is some sort of nuclear winter, I'm still going to have to face it at a certain point. I don't even, even get to escape through death because that's not true. That's not a real thing. That um, means that, yes, I'm going to keep moving in and out of that kind of time form. So even if I die, uh, I like or sorry, I will die most likely. <laughs> but even even if I don't experience materiality in this incarnation or whatever, the next version probably will. You know, I mean, I don't think that I'm just going to automatically leave. You know, um, all of that. So I'm going to have to uh, sort of touch down into that kind of materiality and that existence that you're talking about anyway. So there is a sort of necessity <clears throat> continuing with it. Yeah, yeah but. Of, uh, this makes me think of one of the um, one of one of Nietzsche's observations about the idea of the eternal return. And of course, he was say, he he said that accepting the eternal return as a as a fact it takes superhuman strength to the point that specifically the Ubermensch, the Superman, is the one who can say yes to the eternal return to the fact of repeating infinitely the same action infinite times. But also in this case, living every, all the lives on, in all the time, infinitely. Of course, we would need to progress to become ubermesh to do that. But I think it's also possible to um, face this in another way. Let's say by become, becoming maybe lesser men, <laughs> lesser people, mm. by identifying, I think, only in part with what we are here or what we will be in the future and so on and so forth. Even just in this moment right now, if I, if what I truly am, the thing that is thinking my thoughts, the thing that is saying my words, 
within me is fundamentally only pure existence, which is in itself beyond space and time, that happens to witness within itself and to create it within its imagination, space and time to identify with this. And then which would move on to become and already is everybody else in the future, in the past and in the present. Then it means that to a, to a certain extent, I am here, I am myself, and I am all the different beings that I see around myself. But also right now, I am also outside of myself, outside of all the beings and outside of all the world. Mm -hmm. The thing that dies, the thing that goes through the cha changes and transformation is the worldly part, so to say, of existence. So the part of existence which is um, contained within this vision, the vision of the world. The other part is not subject to any of these transformations or changes, is always eternally stable. This is, I think, represented um, pictorially in certain cosmograms where the universe is seen, is depicted as having many different dimensions. Mm -hmm. And of course, also the microcosm of a person containing many different dimensions simultaneously. So I think on the one hand, yes, it takes superhuman strength to accept the fact that one is trapped forever in this cycle. But on the other, it also it is possible to realize that at the same time, one is already free from all these cycles and is already outside, is already beyond the cycle of death. And from there, right. it is possible to move back into the world. Well, right. I mean, yeah, definitely. Like I, I would hope not to characterize like reincarnation as being trapped, but rather as being, you know, offered the opportunity for real love again and again, because even though you might be in the cycle, if you know, the, the recurrence of your own being or in different forms of incarnation is going to change the, the totality. I think, you know, this is something that I can't say I experienced, but I would guess you know, um, that we change the laws of nature as we go, you know, we change the laws of the cosmos, we change how th the, the totality as we reincarnate each time. And so I think that um, it's an opportunity every time, you know, um, and that also, I agree with the, the, you know, I like this idea of you being, the idea of being sort of outside of it. I mean, I was thinking about your you have this part in prophetic culture. It's just, it's one of my favorite parts. So it's actually quite every day, but it's one of my favorite things that you've written. Um, the empty dishes on the kitchen table, a glass over the corner of a napkin, the liquid at its bottom vibrating at the rhythm of my drumming um, and so on and so forth. Describing the scene, a very, a, a simple scene and then bringing in um, Hermes uh, Trismegistus uh, <laughs> into, into the scene with you. Um, but the idea of describing, uh, describing reality or describing a quite a simple reality um, at the start of a quite an epic sort of journey um, at the end of the book and and thinking how do I how do I get in here like what's the right inroads what's the right pathway and each pathway will create a different sort of adventure for me it reminds me of the beginning of um, in America by Susan Sontag where she's uh, sort of seeing the scene of the characters and she's a she's a narrator. She is herself as the narrator, Susan Sontag, in a way, but also not there. She's at a party and she's sort of approaching and then pulling away and approaching and pulling away from different scenes and conversations until she latches onto one. And then the rest of the novel sort of takes place after that. And I think, you know, um, 
when we talk about being outside, you know, and you've written about this as a con- the concept of adventure, you know, the way that we sort of find our way in becomes an adventure to us rather than, uh, I mean, it's not as if no suffering or pain or sorrow will happen upon the adventure, but it presents a different framework for us for how we enter and why we would enter in the first place. Yeah, I mean, about the the part of setting it, that was actually literally my kitchen, which is in Jordan, which is the other one. <laughs> um, yeah, in part is because I'm, I am maybe a lazy writer and like I, I live mostly confined in, in, my, in my, my flat. But, um, but it's also because I think when, when you were, when I was trying to characterize at the beginning what philosophy uh, comes from, and I was mentioning how Aristotle calls it, the, the thing that comes out of Thauma, this feeling of awe and amazement at the same time. This awe and amazement is, of course, towards the great mysteries of reality. And the great mysteries of reality you can find in your kitchen. It doesn't, <laughs> the, let's say the very, very important things, the very important problems about the nature of reality mm-hmm. equally apply anywhere you are. You're, you're locked in your bathroom and you have the perfect location for a, a very, very serious ontological investigation of reality. Mm-hmm. The fact that anything exists is the greatest mystery, which we cannot explain. Not, not only we cannot explain where it, where it comes from, where it goes, and all those kind of things, but we cannot even explain that it is, what it actually means when we say that something exists. What do we mean precisely when we say that something, something actually truly exists? And so, of course, I started in the kitchen because it was, it was the same perfect thing. Now, entering this, I was trying, when I was writing that book, to present um, a vision of how reality is structured and the, the vision of reality which is a, uh, a cosmology you say like the, the vision of, of an entire cosmos <clears throat> at first i was thinking of writing it in a philosophical you know standard metaphysical manner so saying basically that reality is composed of many different di- dimensions these dimensions are not in reality itself but they depend on the way in which we approach reality so let's say our ability to understand has many different layers and creates many different worlds as we proceed through it up to the point of the very limit of our imagination and our understanding. That's the limit of what we can possibly include in our vision of reality. So it is a cosmology, but it is not a map of everything which exists. It's a map of everything which we can somehow approach as existing. And then beyond it, there is more. But then I thought that In fact, the way in which we move through these dimensions, when we proceed with our mind through them, has very much to do with the journey of a hero in a fable, fundamentally, because it is that thought which transforms the thinker as they think it. It's that particular movement of the mind, which then, as it progresses and discovers new dimensions of reality, transforms the way in which we we are, we identify as anything. And so I, I, I decided to write it as a fable. Uh, in part also because I have some familiarity with fables. I have a young son; he's now eight years old, and like I have a lot of practice of of telling stories for children. And so it's a fable to a certain extent for children, also. But I think because also it gives the the flavor of what it is like truly to engage with philosophy. It is something that transforms you as you do it. Yeah, yeah I mean, there's a line in. Ulysses, uh, which is you know any 
any object intensely regarded may be a gate of access to the incorruptible aeon of the gods. <laughs> and uh, I thought about, I mean, I think about Ulysses all the time. There's also this moment, you know, in the sort of notoriously hard chapter, which everybody stops the intellectual modality of the visible where Stephen Dedalus is kind of testing reality simply by opening and closing his eyes. Would it all be there? What if I opened my eyes and it was all black anyway? You know, I mean, he's sort of testing this out. And of course that entire book is a, is a novel about the adventure of, you know, um, of the, the, the individual. So yeah, I like this idea of, uh, you know, the fable or, you know, entering into these dimensions, there's that also that thing I'm thinking of that I think it was Deleuze said that, you know, like language is a dimension that we meet in. And so are all these objects, like which, which story of this object or the story of this room that I enter into, this will bring me into a certain dimension, a certain way of speaking, a certain way of relating. And who will I meet in this dimension? And that's always accessible, whether I Am I going to think about where the table came from and who built it? Or am I going to consider the word table and the letters that compose it or the color of the wood or the tree that, you know, it came from or what I do with it or who bought it for me? I mean, those are actually, and those are still quite mundane or everyday versions. I mean, we could do much crazier things with the table if we wanted to. And so I love this, uh, the every I love everything you've said here. Um, I I think um wh- one of the other sort of everyday objects that you bring up is a door. I mean, you bring up this idea of a false door, and I, that was so exciting for me because you know I I try to talk about you know the sort of political necessity of doing what Bugs Bunny does when he's sort of chased down an alley people pursuing him whoever's pursuing him he's chased down an alley he finds a brick wall and he's trapped and so he pulls out a piece of chalk and draws a door and then sort of walks through the door that he's drawn into you know a, a new place or whatever away <laughs> away from the danger and into something new and so i love the idea of the door and i think you know, it's in your book about prophecy and prophets. And your concept, I think, is that, you know, the the prophet is someone who demonstrates that this move is possible since they are positioned outside of the existing order. Their very presence demonstrates uh, the availability of the seemingly impossible. Yeah, I like to start with the door. In particular, the door that you mentioned. So in the book, the, the, the final part of the book, which is this cosmology, this picture of reality, is written as a, as a fable. And it begins with, uh, let's say, a beginning that is titled Scheintur. Scheintur is a German word, is a word used by German archaeologists to define a certain kind of door that can be found in Egyptian uh, burials, pyramids, for example, and so on. The, the, this fake door, that's what Shinto means, is a door that is used not to let the bodies of the dead, for example, to come in and out, but it's a particular door that is a, that allows the spirit of the dead to move in and out. In um, according to the to, to an Egyptian ancient Egyptian way of looking, a person is composed of many different things: the material body, for example, the ba, the vital energy, but they're also composed of the ka. The ka is the double. And is also, let's say, the protective spirit of a person. So the shine tour, the fake door, is that thing which allows this double to 
to transit in and out from the burial cham chamber. I like this idea of starting this journey into reality with a false door, because I wanted somehow to imply that the journey begins like this. <clears throat> you are at the kitchen table and you look at the very familiar objects around you. A, a chair is a chair, a, a glass is a glass. And then you stop for a moment to believe that a glass is actually a glass. You start doubting of whether the definition of glass is sufficient to define what you have in front of you or, or whether in that glass there is a lot more going on that you can perceive through the definition of glass. And so at that point, somehow it is as if you were detaching yourself from that world made of chairs and glasses and tables, objects nicely divided, and you let your car, your double, go through the objects through a false door. And so you, you enter somehow in the objects and you examine all the different ways in which they reveal themselves to you. They reveal themselves to you through their definitions. They reveal themselves to, to you through their archetypical emanations. They reveal themselves to you ineffably or they reveal themselves to you darkly is a negative or non-existence and so on and so forth. All the way to the very limit of what can be revealed to our awareness as embodied as it is, which is the idea of relation. Anything that we can have an experience of is relational. We don't have experiences of substances. We have experiences of relations. And that is the limit. Beyond that, there is more, but, you know, it truly is impossible to say even speculatively anything about it. The prophet is somebody that somehow looks at this and uh, undertakes this particular journey. When I talk about prophecy, which is also the title of the book, um, it's complicated. The previous book was about magic. And of course, it was complicated because magic has a particular definition in common use, which is not the one that I adopt. And so I had to redefine it. Prophecy also has another typical understanding in, uh, in the way which you, we commonly use this term. It usually has to do with like foreseeing the future or like being able to predict whether something will happen or not. And I have a very different understanding of that. When I talk about prophecy fundamentally and about the prophet, I talk about a particular way of looking towards reality, time and space, which allows, which allows you to see different things to see, for example, the multiplicity of dimensions, to see that every single dimension taken on its own is truly insufficient, to see also the desire of these dimensions to look at each other, and so on and so forth. So when I talk about prophecy, but mostly when I talk about prophets, I don't talk about specific individuals, which we should imitate specifically as them. But we talk. I talk about a particular position towards reality towards the I, the way in which we imagine reality that particular position is the position of the prophet and allows you to see certain things and as a consequence also encourages you to behave in certain ways for example in reference to time when you realize the not only the relativity of time which is a nice thing to say but i don't think everyone really gets really what it what it means what it entails but also the the finitude of time, the fact that time itself as a rhythm, as a certain way of counting things is limited. Time is not infinite and it constantly ends. Then it already starts, I think, helps you to, to start understanding differently what you can see in your own being present, you know, in this present moment in time 
what are your relationship with the future and what are your relationship with the past. You see yourself as, to a certain extent, always already past. Yeah, let me see if I can take that on. Um, I'm thinking about, oh, where do I start? Um, <laughs> so I'm thinking about, so a writer that, um, it's no offense if you know her or your friends, but a writer whose work I don't particularly care for, which is who's, uh, Silvia Federici, um, who I think the the main well a bunch of problems for me in in her work but the main thing that i think is good that she points out although i think it ends up being a missed opportunity is the sort of this antagonistic relationship between witchcraft and capitalism but i think that this <clears throat> the point that should be ex expanded and worked with more is this time and spatial sense, not the issue of productivity, although I understand how that could be located in space and time, but actually the way in which magic, but particularly witchcraft in this case, has a different time and space sense than capitalism. And capitalism has a very sort of um, future-oriented, uh, a, a very sort of limited future-oriented relationship um, to time that is, you know, much like anxiety and the kinds of desires that we have um, that I think are named really well by psychoanalysts, um, that are named well by, you know, people like Zizek and Alenka Zupancic and um, people who are understand how closely capitalism and desire are welded together. And that can't be um, when you're dealing with witchcraft and magic. Um, and obviously capitalism has a very close relationship to this technique, the thing which you name, um, or is part of it. Um, I think the prophet, someone who has the ability to position themselves in a certain way, can see through or around or with a lens of time, um, who who is who is left the ways in which, uh, uh, which is Michel Serres says in his last book, you know, time is layered in local space. So when I think about this idea that like the prophet leaves local space as well in a way and is able, it, or the, or sorry, the position of the prophet is outside of local space in the way time is layered in it and can sort of anticipate all of these things. Now, I that's my understanding of what you've written. I mean, that's my way of sort of interpreting and finding my way in and uh, sitting with the glass and the napkin and the table of what you've written and uh, working with it. Um, and it, it is always when I do the podcast, I always think, this is the person whose work I'm talking about thinking you don't, don't understand anything I've written, but that's my, <laughs> that's my way of, of, of finding my way in it and, and making it uh, friendly and exciting to me. Um, so no but the, the the matter of time i think it's it's important sorry if i interrupt yeah. but i think yeah. it's it's important the, the of course i mean time is a very interesting it's one of it's one of the maybe the most interesting metaphysical problems uh what is time saint augustine used to say what is time if you don't ask me i know very well the moment you ask me uh, suddenly i don't know anymore what <laughs> of course time is an interesting thing and we know that it doesn't exist it's been disproved infinite times sorry for the pun but 
when in our common use of the term time, when we imagine it, and it is very important how we imagine it, because how we imagine things in common everyday life is how we live, you know, influences heavily, very heavily, totally how we live. Then we can have this abstract conceptual understanding which we keep separate you know like the cutlery that you keep for the for the nice dinner you will never have for the guests that will never arrive but then in everyday use you, you use the crab cutlery and the the no there's a crab cutlery version of our idea of time is that time exists very much that it flows in a particular way at a very precise rhythm but also that it is infinite mm. this leads to a series of consequences I think it's important um, to keep in mind that time does not exist. It is an hypothesis. It's a rhythm that we adopt, you know, to uh, to face the movements and then our our, the, our way of narrating the world. That it can be structured in different ways, but especially that if time does not truly exist, what there is in its place beyond our rhythm is eternity. And eternity is that particular word that in the contemporary discussions of time is always almost entirely absent. It seems like a relic of the Middle Ages. Eternity is the condition of timelessness in time. Mm -hmm. It's very useful because it also allows you to conceptualize that right now in this particular moment, this particular moment exists at the same simultaneously in time, within our narration, within our uh and uh, say commitment to believe in reality as we construct it but simultaneously exists outside of time in a timeless eternity that this particular instant is simultaneously inside and outside of time and that you can enter it you can enter time from eternity you can enter eternity from time you're not locked within only one mm. yeah I, and you <clears> know it, I, <laughs> there's a there's the problem then in what you're saying, which you do address um, in your writing about cause and effect then, because cause and effect has a very specific <clears throat> time imagining. And, um, you know, and time as we picture it, yeah, it's, a, it's an extension of logic in a way, essentially. And so ca cause and effect falls into that. Um, but there's a there's an Italian occultist, uh, Mario Betti, who says, you know, instead of talking about cause and effect, we should talk about being and manifestation. And I love this way of describing it because it's, you know, yes, something comes into notice, but that's about all you can say into, about it. If something comes into, something intersects with, with the experience or something, something appears you know, um, but the, but the being, and it, and it's a being, and we should address it as a being. Um, and I, 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 yes, I like this uh, version of it a bit more. Now, listen, first of all, um, thanks for all of this. And I, I'm everybody, you know, if you've gotten this far, <laughs> God bless you. <laughs> but, but uh, I, but I do have a question for people that have gotten this far and are either like, what the fuck, or the people who have already turned it off um, and nevertheless to address them. You know, there is a resistance to all of this, right? Like, I mean, you work for Verso and you, <laughs> or you've worked with Verso and you've done a lot of leftist related and adjacent projects. I mean, there's not that much room for these kinds of conversations as and we push on them and i understand there are lots of brilliant people who are 
excited to talk about this sort of stuff. And yet there's also a deep resistance to it. And um, within the very people that, you know, we'd help to find allies with in some of the struggles and movement and ways of improving the world and reconstructing reality and asking what the, what is a human being with? So what what's up with that? Why? <laughs> and what do we do? Well, I can I can testify uh, as in from a, from an insider perspective that there used to be uh, very much resistance in the fifties and sixties, but much less today. Uh, in, in Italy, in the nineteen fifties, for example, the main leftist publisher in Audi would refuse to publish Nietzsche. Mm -hmm. So Nietzsche was not actually properly published until another publisher came about, try, just trying to do that because it was outside of the canon of the left. Now that situation, uh, uh, it's it's gone. There's there's now on the left different understandings that are coming up about the fluidity of beings, also the fluidity of categories, gender, for example, the notion of personhood and so on and so forth. And that is very much emerging. Of course, from uh, there are other voices that especially come from another moment in the development of the of the left, uh, maybe from a few years ago, they're still um, there that are much more connected to the you know, old school positivistic materialism. But I, th I can see the left actually going in, a, in the direction of a more um, wide and um, broad and non-materialistic understanding of, uh, of left-wing politics. Because as you were saying, it is not necessary to endorse the materialistic view of it to endorse leftist politics. Mm -hmm. That said, <clears throat> politically speaking, I think it's not um, too much of a problem in a sense. I think it's okay to have a united front, let's say based on projects. So the project of emancipation of uh, or, or reduction of suffering can can be something that we can do even if we come from completely different perspectives. A materialist and a mystic on some aspects of the project can collaborate very well. Mm -hmm. And I am, as an anarchist, I'm a Stirnerian. I'm an individualist anarchist. I am for the union of egoists. So we let's say we get together without swearing on the same flag, and I think that's okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, that sounds great. I mean, I, <laughs> I don't have that. I don't have quite as much of that experience as you. I mean, I think I am glad that you're hopeful. I mean, <laughs> I think there's still a lot of resistance, especially, you know, there's a big, uh, there's a, a big misconception of, say, occultism and magic being tools of fascists only. You know, I mean, whether we are talking about um, people who are really fascists, you know, like, um, you know, we're talking about Evola or um, if we're talking about, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, even Alexander Dugan or somebody like that. Or we're talking about people who are sort of misconstrued as fascists, um, whether that's, you know, Rudolf Steiner or Madame Blavatsky, mm -hmm. people that I think we can really turn to for a lot of inspiration and, and help in uh, the yeah. projects that we have and what we want yeah. to do. So. And I think that there is a lot of resistance to that. I mean, there are certainly anarchist, there's an anarchist journal that uh, someone asked me to write for. And then they said, yeah, but you're not allowed to write anything about the occult. It's the one rule that they have, <laughs> which I thought was very funny. I mean, and there's there's lots of stuff like that. And I, I do worry about um, the ways in which the left is also constantly falling back into this um idea a certain version of technic that does not uh, allow for any of that kind of rupture that you know magic occultism non-materiality brings 
Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I had the same problem myself, especially in the past. Some of the authors that I looked at, think of Ernest Junger or René Guénon, for example, <laughs> you know, they they have political ideas, especially Guénon, who advocates a rigid caste system, um, very, very far from mine. But of course, I didn't look to them as if I was looking for new conscripts for my army or allies for my expedition. I was going through their toolkit, getting the tools that I needed, mm. frankly. Um, that's it. You know, I think this is a good philosophical inquiry. It's, it's not state buildings. So you have to create the right people that come into you and, and police them in that way. It is, it is a much more adventurous enterprise. You need some tools. And sometimes you find tools in the most unlikely places. Of course, then you have to consider to what extent the tool is tainted by the aim of the person that created it. But very often you have a heterogeneity of the ends that leads also the most um, unlikely people to do something completely opposite to what they were intending to do. The left has had this problem, I think, of purity in that sense of like um, a purity of the pedigree of the person in order to assess the quality of their output, which is, I think, it's a bit silly. The quality of certain outputs in almost every field, field, I know this is a, a contentious statement, but I think for the vast majority of cases and to the greatest part are delinked from the particular pedigree and belief of the person. Mm -hmm. We went to the point even that the left renounced things like Wagner because it was liked by the Nazis. And the, the problem is not that, you know, the problem is not with Wagner. The problem is with us. You know, if we renounce Wagner, we, we're really missing out. It's completely pointless. I think it's important to have a more um, functional understanding of how thought, that thought is actually useful. It's not just positioning. Thought is something that you actually need to improve life and to expand consciousness. It's not a matter of belonging to one particular group or, or to another. So yeah, that said, once again, I think in recent years, this is going away very much on the left. This, this, this is happening less and less towards those particular authors, even though, on the other hand, it's happening still a lot in terms of like assessing the, the absolute moral purity of a person before you can accept or publish or listen to anything they say. This is, I don't know, this strikes me as, as a very bad way of understanding what thought is for. Yeah, and it's obviously like a neoliberal like version of leftism because I mean, you know, obviously all the products that are being used are tainted by you know, lots of terrible labor practices and you know all this sort of stuff. But then reaching to some thinker who's been long dead for ideas that might be useful in us assessing reality and the struggle suddenly is off the table. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there is a great line by. Joseph Boys, who was an occultist, it was something like, um, you know, we must not be so naive to think that we will find a weapon without blood on it or something like that, you know, yeah. and I think that, that that's, that's right. Um, and I, and I just want to thank you for being someone that is and pushing on that boundary or, uh, or creating a new door where the wall was, because it is very, uh, absolutely necessary and it's such an important project and it's one that for me i feel a lot of warmth from and uh, a lot of uh I, I feel less lonely reading what you've written so i really appreciate it and uh thank you so much Federico. thank you that is uh, the best compliment i've ever received thank you <laughs> and uh thanks everybody for listening bye now goodbye